Would you take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we are this morning. Uh, You may recall that last week we concluded our study in the Beatitudes. um, And the, the Beatitudes are the teaching of Jesus for what life is like in the kingdom of God. Um, And since that's the case, we thought it would be beneficial to take two more weeks in Matthew um, to hear the Lord's Prayer, to be reminded and refreshed in what the Lord's Prayer is all about. And I got to tell you, as I've been studying this week and preparing, this has been such a blessing to my heart. Uh, My prayer this week has been that it would be a blessing to your heart as well this morning as we're reminded of the prayer that Christ offered to instruct his disciples in how to pray. Because in the Lord's Prayer, we find what praying in the kingdom is like. So, So if the Beatitudes are describing what life in the kingdom is like, the Lord's Prayer is a descriptor through prayer of what kingdom praying is like. And I think we need, all of us in our modern day, we need to be taught afresh regularly how to pray. Think about it this way. If Jesus' disciples needed to be taught how to pray, if John the Baptist's disciples needed to be taught how to pray, do you think that you and I with all of our distractions and all the things that grab our hearts, do you think that you and I need to be reminded regularly of how to pray? I will say I need to be reminded regularly of how to pray. Um, there's so much in the Lord's Prayer. This could be an 8 to 20 week uh, long sermon. We're, we're not going to do that. We're going to take two weeks on the Lord's Prayer because beginning in September, we're going to the Old Testament, to the book of Nehemiah. And so we're looking forward to that. But these two weeks, we pray and we ask, we're asking God, Lord, fill us with a renewed sense of what you want us to be praying for, that we might be informed by, in our prayers, by what Jesus prays for uh, as he teaches his disciples. So, um, by the way, for a pastor to take up uh, the mantle to teach on the Lord's Prayer on one level seems pretty presumptuous because the Lord's Prayer, I mean, there's this great economy of words and, and Jesus puts it exactly as he intends it to be for us in, in that sense. And so to expound on the Lord's Prayer is in one sense, it's, it's kind of tricky business because if Jesus wanted to teach more on it, then he would have, but he was, econ- he used economy in his words. Um, at the same time, though, there's something profoundly wonderful here for us to meditate upon. You know, you can take even one phrase of this prayer and meditate on it for weeks. And I hope that in going through this, this prayer over the next two weeks, it would, it would just stir some things deep within us that we would consider this prayer again. This isn't some magic mantra, you know, just pray this prayer and all your troubles will go away. No, that's not what it's intended for. Not some magic, but it is intended to instruct our hearts on the kinds of things to pray for. And we can pray this prayer. We should pray this prayer. Actually, when we read it, um, I'm going to read around this prayer. And in the middle, uh, you know, we're going to get to verse 9 in chapter 6. I'd like you, as I'm reading the word, I'd like you, it will be projected on the screen. I'd like you to pray it with me. So, with all that, Matthew 6, I'm starting reading at verse 5. When I get to verse 9, 
join in with me in the Lord's Prayer, if you would. This is the word of the Lord, dear church. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Join with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and write its eternal truths on our hearts today. The Lord's Prayer, you may already know, is considered by many to be the greatest prayer ever uttered. Think about this. Over the past 2,000 years, Saints of all nationalities and tongues and tribes have been instructed by its wisdom, by its insight, and by its requisite humility. Augustine, he was a a great theologian, wrote um, wonderful books, including the Confessions. Um, Augustine published expositions of the Lord's Prayer. Martin Luther preached a volume of sermons on the Lord's Prayer. The Westminster Confession of Faith bases nine questions on the Lord's Prayer. It, the, the Lord's Prayer is known and recited by more people around the globe than any other prayer from any other faith. And here it is this morning, having been utilized over thousand, the past 2,000 years By so many, here it is this morning, preserved for us that we might learn from it. Think about it this way, dear friends. This morning, we sit at the feet of Jesus as he teaches us how to pray. This is what he taught his disciples. This is what he is teaching us. Um, just thinking about the Lord's Prayer broadly, uh, its initial focus is attention on the Lord himself. So uh, the prayer is initially focused on, on the Lord, on his name, on his kingdom, and on his will. And then it turns to the prayer in the second half for our daily needs, like our daily food for the forgiveness of our sins that we may not fall into temptation. And it was interesting. I was reading Calvin this week, and, and Calvin made a commentary of how 
of how the Lord's Prayer in some ways really does mirror the Ten Commandments because the first four commandments are about the glory of God, that he is to be worshipped alone. And so the first four commandments are putting their attention on the Lord and then commandments 5 through 10 are uh, how we're to live with one another. So in, in like manner, so does this. The, the first part is the glory and honor and, and praise be to God and then our daily needs from person to person. So it's interesting observation that Calvin had made. Now, why such attention to prayer? Why, why did Jesus need to teach his disciples? Well, partly because prayer is essential to the, to the heartbeat and the life of the Christian person. It's our communion with the Father. And, and Jesus had great joy in praying to his Father. Uh, the scriptures remind us that he got up early before it was day to have fellowship and prayer with his Father. Praying was not Praying was not for Jesus. It was not drudgery. In fact, he prayed before major decisions in his life. Before he chose the disciples. What did he do? He went out and prayed and sought the face of his father. Before he moved from town to town when he was doing his mission, he didn't just go helter-skelter. He went at the command of his father. On the night before his death, the most critical night of his life, what did he do? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed with his father. It was, it was his place of consolation. It was a place of comfort. It was a place of joy in communing with the father. And, and we want to experience greater and greater degrees of that in our own lives. Let, let's be honest this morning. Few of us would say, you know, I'm... I'm arrived in my prayer life. I'm, I'm good. I, I don't need any further instruction. I think few of us, perhaps none of us, would say that. Because we all have room to grow in our prayer lives. And that's why Jesus instructs us here. Because he wants us to grow. He wants to, to give us a deeper and more profound experience of his love and affection for us. And, and prayer is the best way to experience that. Our British friend... Martin Lloyd-Jones declares it this way. He says, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. When a man is speaking to God, he is at his very acme. It is the highest activity of the human soul and therefore it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Would you agree with that? There's nothing so much that tells us the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Now, lest that quote leave you to be dejected. That's not the point. The point is to say, brothers and sisters, Jesus is with us this morning through his word to instruct us yet again that we might be stirred in our prayer life, that we might be encouraged in our prayers, that that God wants to invite us in 
so that we can experience more of that joy in him as we pray to him. So let's get to it. Uh, today, by the way, I'm just going to focus on the first two verses. Next week, we'll, we'll cover the other three. So we're just taking this phrase by phrase as we walk through this prayer. So he begins, as he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Now, uh, when he says our Father, let's just think about those two words He's inviting his disciples, those who believe him, those who have entrusted their hearts to him, those who have believed in him for salvation. This isn't some general term for anyone to pray. No, he's inviting his disciples to to experience a depth of unity with God, a depth of communion with God that is unknown to those who are outside of the faith. He's teaching his disciples and saying, hey, here's then how you pray. Our Father. There's a community here. There's, there's this sense that, that God is, in fact, our Father. He is personal. We can know him. He loves us intimately and cares about every detail in our lives. And so Jesus draws us to the Father's heart. The Father's heart is not cold toward you this morning. The Father's heart is not aloof. He's not, you know, unaware of the things going on in your life. Let me remind you that the scriptures tell us that he knows the numbers of the hairs on our head. And if he cares about that, my goodness, does he care about every detail in your life, every joy in your life he cares about, every sorrow in your life he cares about, everything that causes you to wake up in the middle of the night, he cares about it. This is our Father that we get to pray to. Now, calling God Father, just a a little bit of context here, calling God Father would have been an amazingly shocking thing for these Jewish folk to hear. They were likely, in fact, stunned to hear Jesus invite them to call God Father. Why? It's not because they'd never heard the concept perhaps before, but they were so accustomed to the the grandeur, the lofty names of God, they, they understood God to be so profoundly transcendent, so above, so glorious and holy, that to think that God would invite us into intimacy, into his very heart, if you will, by calling him Father, this would have been shocking to them. To us, it may not seem so shocking. We, we have a sense of that. In fact, sometimes I think we need to recover some ground in the, the reverence that we have for God and in the holy fear of God and a, and a glad joyfulness in his presence. I, I think we could do well to recover some of that. But, but he's inviting us, Jesus by his teaching us, saying, here, here's how you pray, our Father, he's inviting us to a place of intimacy with God himself. We can call him Father. He is familiar with you. See, Jesus is sharing with his disciples and therefore with us. He's, he's sharing his Father with us. He knows the delights of the Father and he wants us to experience those delights as well. Praying is not boring. Praying is experiencing God. And sometimes when we pray, again, honesty prevails here. Sometimes when we pray, it can feel a bit hollow, can it not? 
It can feel a bit shallow. Not every time we pray do we, do we feel these warm fuzzies overwhelm us and feel so close to God. That's not every time. But, but what Jesus is communicating now by saying our Father is this is His disposition toward you. He is a Father toward you. He loves you perfectly. And I, I recognize in a room this size, there, there may be perhaps, perhaps be people who have experienced fathers who were, who were aloof to their troubles and who were not attentive to their needs and, and for whom the word father may be painful. The fact that that may be so, though, doesn't take away from this father that we pray to. In other words... He invites us to himself. And Jesus ushers us. It's like Jesus is taking us by the hand and saying, come and dwell with my Father. Every time you cry out to him, he hears you. Every concern that you have, he notes. And every time you ask him, he responds. We may not always know his response, but he responds This is the kind of way that God wants us to relate to him. Listen to another British guy, John Stott. He says this, In telling us to address God as our Father in heaven, the concern of Jesus is not with protocol. Teaching us the correct etiquette in approaching the deity. That's not what he's talking about. But with truth, in other words, that we might come to him in the right frame of mind. It is always wise before we pray to spend time deliberately recalling who he is. Only then shall we come to our loving Father in heaven with appropriate humility, devotion, and confidence. That's why this isn't just some rote prayer that we pray. No, we we take time to think about what Jesus is calling us to say that the principles to which he draws our hearts and our minds. He wants us to see our God as our Father in heaven. We we talk to somebody, we pray to somebody who cares about our needs. There's a second aspect of Father that I want to draw out for a moment as well. He's not just all intimacy and and close uh, as much as we love those aspects about him. The name Father also means that God is authority. He is the one who stands in authority over all things, and He's the one who stands in authority over all kingdoms and all powers in this world. And so we come to the one who is near to us. We also come to the one who is our authority. So when, when we say and when we speak our Father in heaven, think of both of those. That Jesus has ushered us into the very heart of God. That he wants personal relationship with us in prayer, specifically in prayer. And that our Father, he is in fact our authority. We are his children. We're not on our own. We are his children. And so he, he invites us to both of those realities as he begins this prayer. He is our Father. He's our Father who's in heaven. And think about that. What does this mean? He's, he's not only a father who cares, but he's a father who can provide for all of our needs. What is heaven like? Heaven is like the place of his unmitigated domain. He is, he, there's no evil there. There's, no, there's nothing to thwart him in any way. 
for some time, for some reason, God has allowed evil in the world. But heaven, there is no evil there. What he says is commanded and immediately is done. Our Father is in heaven. There's no limit, no limit to his ability to care for us. He is able to bless. He is able to provide. He has resources that have no end. And I think Jesus wants us to be reminded of that. Our Father, the one who draws us in, the one who is our authority, our Father in heaven, the one who at his speaking does all things. At his speaking creates the heavens and the earth. At his speaking creates man and women. At his speaking things take reality. That's who we pray to as we begin our Father in heaven. He goes on. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This prayer starts with this relationship, our Father. It reminds us of the majesty that surrounds him in heaven and now concerns himself with the hallowing of God's name. Now, that's not a word that we use very often. Uh, What does it mean to hallow? It means to revere. It means to give respect and honor to. It means to... to, um, have an appropriate fear of the Lord. Not, not, not being afraid of the Lord, but actually this happy, joyful, unbelieving sense that I, I can't believe that God loves me this much. We have a reverence for God. See, the, the concerns and, and the cares that we bring to him, they, they will be answered in God's time. And, and because he is the one who can provide, we, we come to him with reverence and awe. And the name of God, the names, plural, of God, what do they do? They describe his character. So I'm not going to use the actual Old Testament names. I'll just give their translation. Here are some of the names of God in translation. He is the great I am. He is God most high. He is almighty God. He is I am who is my help. He is I am who is our refuge. Why did God give those names to his people except that he wanted to bless them? He wanted those names to be a descriptor of his character and of his nature. And so if you are an Old Testament person and you're, you're, you're walking along and you're, you're reminded in your own need that, that I pray to the I am who is my help, do you know what that does for you? It, it puts winds in your, wind in your sails. It reminds you that God is the one who can help you. It creates faith in your heart that you can, in fact, have your needs provided for. The names of God are given for that purpose. They're given to describe him and to encourage us in giving those names for us. You know, when we think about the names of God and all that he gives to us by way of comfort and encouragement in those names. I, I, I think a, a practical application for us would be a, a study of the names of God. Have you ever done that, by the way? Uh, you can Google it and find all kinds of good, good resources for this. Study the names of God. Uh, the names of God, again, are given not because he likes to have many names. It's because they're just the descriptors of his character. So, you know, that may be something to to take up over the the coming week as we study the Lord's Prayer. Take up a study of the names of God. 
See, when, when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, he's thinking all of the characteristics that make up God, all of those things are combined together in one in the Father. All of the graces of the Lord. To hallow his name means that we walk in a manner that remembers who we are, right? In practical terms. We can say, oh, hallow be your name and, and kind of be formal about it. But to hallow the name of God, it means something in our day-to-day lives. It means that we are going to love him and give him the honor, not just by our words, say, oh, I honor you, but then do whatever we want. No, to hallow God means that, that when people look at our lives, they can see that our heart's desire is to honor him. Hallow be your name. Another way of saying it is this. Lord, help me to treat your name as holy. Help me to revere you as holy. And help me to live in such a way as people can see that in my life. It's not just something we say to God. It's a heart disposition before him. Think about the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here we are, another catechism. What is the chief end of man? Do you see it there? Let's say it together. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is your chief end, Christian. Look at that. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I think the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith were heavily influenced by the Lord's Prayer in writing that answer. When you boil our lives all down, when you strip away all the things that we think matter to us, when it's all boiled down, what is the purpose for which God has placed us on this earth? It is to radiate glory to Him, to praise Him by our words, by our life, by our decisions, how we use our money, how we use our time. It's all to glorify Him. And then, I love the second part of it, because it's all linked together, to enjoy Him. Because when we see Him for who He is, we will enjoy Him. We will love Him. We will uh, (laughs) not believe that He's been so merciful and so gracious to us. Listen to the invitation of the psalmist. He says it this way, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. This is what we're doing this morning, church. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. When we remember that God's name is to be hallowed, it's to be respected, it's to be honored, all of our lives, right? All of our lives, we just, we just want it to reflect him. I was watching a video this week that somebody had recommended um, and I hadn't seen it before. And, um, and in this video, um, the person uh, took the name of the Lord in vain. And it, it just shot through me like, like black darkness. When we, when we love Jesus Christ, when we love the name of God who saved us. It will be the most distasteful thing we can hear. Right? Are you with me? When, when we hear someone 
take the name of the Lord in vain. Because that's the name of our Savior. Because that's the one who who died for us. When you hear someone curse the name of Jesus, doesn't it just make your skin boil? I once said to somebody, don't ever say that, please, in my presence again. I knew them. They knew me. We were familiar. But they took the name of the Lord in vain. And I, I said, please, please don't ever do that again around me. Please. It hurts to hear that. And increasingly so, if we honor, if we, if we hallow his name, if we love the name of our Savior, we won't be able to tolerate that in the sense of it, it just, we hear it and it, it's like nails on the chalkboard. Why? Because we love the name of Jesus Christ. And this is what he's teaching our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. We honor your name. We give reverence to your name. This is the name above all names. And this is what we gather to glory in. We gather to glory in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, his son. We gather to glory in it. Now, uh, some of you might ask the question, okay, I hear that. But what if I've grown cold? What if I've grown cold to God's honor and glory? What if I'm not as attentive to those things as Christ would have me be? Well, First of all, we remember the gospel, don't we? Because we were all cold once to the glory of God. We, we were not only indifferent, we hated the glory of God. We didn't want anything to do with the glory of God. And God, by his mercy through Jesus Christ, sent Jesus into the world to rescue and redeem us from our coldness. From the hearts of stone that we once had. So we remember the gospel. We go back to the gospel. We say, Lord, I can't believe what I deserved was hell. And I can't believe that you gave me heaven. I can't believe that you would be righteous to pour out your wrath against my sins. That would be righteous of you to do. But but instead you substituted your son in my place. He was condemned. I go free. I can't believe that. So when, when we're cold to the glory of God, we go back to the gospel. And the gospel warms our hearts again and reminds us of who we once were and who we now are. And that has a way of affecting our hearts. I was reading part of a sermon by a dude from the 1800s. Um, you may have heard this, the name of this sermon before. It's called, uh, quite a title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. This guy was a scientist, truly. He was a pastor, but he was also a scientist. Thomas Chalmers, he was a scientist in Scotland in the 1800s. He taught at a university and then at a seminary. And um, I I read this, you know, I don't know if it's true. I'm just telling you that when he died, they said half the population of Edinburgh, Scotland, was there. He had such a profound effect in his uh, science teaching, but also in his theological teaching as a pastor. So the expulsive power of a new affection was the title of this sermon. Here's the basic, I won't read it for you, but here's the basic idea. When we discover that Jesus is a far superior pleasure than any pleasure that we could think or imagine in this life, it will have the effect of killing sin in our lives. 
the expulsive power of a new affection. So here's his premise. Nobody, not you, not I, nobody sins out of duty. We don't, we don't feel some duty to sin and that's why we yield ourselves to it. No, we sin because we falsely believe that sinning will deliver to us some kind of joy, right? Nobody sins out of duty. We think that at times sin is the pathway to greater delight. And so we sin um, because we think it will be better than what God calls us to. And so the only way to kill that power of sin is to be introduced into something that's far more superior, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the only way to remove our blindness to sin, the only way to break our bondage to sin and the deceit of sin is by introducing us to Jesus Christ and our need for him. Then when we've tasted and seen, remember that's what the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is, you say it, good. When we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then what is awakened in our hearts is not this desire for more sin. What's awakened in our hearts is a desire for more of him, right? And so we don't, we don't obey God then out of duty like, oh, you remember that commercial? I'm dating myself back in the uh, maybe late 70s, early 80s. Uh, okay, I've definitely dated myself now. Um, you know the, the Dunkin' Donuts song when the guy woke up and was like, time to make the donuts. Remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that. Okay, four people. Yes. We don't obey God like that. We don't have to, out of duty and drudgery, Obey him like that. There are times, don't get me wrong, where our obedience is one step at a time. But we obey him because we've seen and experienced the joy that he brings to us. We've experienced that life in the kingdom of God is far better than anything else the world has to offer. We've experienced it. We've tasted it. Therefore, we can obey him out of joy and not out of duty. And so this is what he's talking about, Jesus. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We revere your name. We remember that you are right and true in all of your words and in all of your ways. You never speak anything that's untrue. You will never lead us down a path that's wrong or dark. You are totally good. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. He goes on. Your kingdom come. Now, let me say, this is not a petition that God's universal sovereignty will endure. um, Because God's universal sovereignty will always endure. God being sovereign over all things is in no way dependent upon our prayers for it. But what this prayer does, when we pray it, what this prayer does, it reminds ourselves of the purposes of God in the world. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. So how would we define the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, very simply, is his rule and his reign in our hearts. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying, Lord, I want your rule and your reign in my heart. Lord, your kingdom come. That means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to die to my little kingdom that I'm building here, 
my little portfolio. I'm going to seek to die to that and, and live to you. Now, that's not a call to not be responsible and not get a job and pay your bills and all that. No, we, we should do those things. But, but if 100% of my time, think about this. This is where this is, is making an inroad into our hearts and lives. If 100% of my time is dedicated to building my kingdom. And I don't give anything to God. I don't give time or money or resources or anything. Like, like whose kingdom are we living for? That's what he's going after here. He's like, like, Lord, your kingdom come. Yes, I have to, you know, go to work and, and earn a living and pay my bills. Yes. But I'm living for your kingdom, not for my own. I'm, I'm serving your kingdom. And so it's so easy, isn't it, dear friends? It's so easy to lose focus. It's so easy for us to get our focus on building, you know, what we might call our little kingdom and forget the fact that God is about the business of building his kingdom. Now, how, how is God building his kingdom? He's building his kingdom by inviting people to the bridge course. God's building his kingdom by you taking time with your neighbors in your neighborhood to demonstrate love for them and be able to uh, share the hope of Jesus Christ with them. God is building his kingdom through the proclamation of the word of God. God is building his kingdom as churches are being planted, as churches are being strengthened. God is building his kingdom as the gospel goes out to every tribe, nation, tribe, and tongue all over the world. I was talking to Ed O'Mara two weeks ago. He, he just moved from the south of Italy to the north of Italy as they're getting ready to start their church plant now that he's fluent enough to preach in Italian. And he, he said, just remember me to the church and pray for us. And we do. Like we pray that God would use that church in Torino, Italy as a beacon of light, a beacon of hope for those who are in Italy. Do you know, I read this statistic recently that less than 1% of Italy of Italian people are evangelical Christians less than 1% so that's less than 1 out of 100 people you have 100 people in a room less than one of them i don't know how that works out but less than one of them um, are believers thinks that that's what compelled ed and robin to go, to leave a comfortable position in Annapolis, Maryland, and to go to Italy to learn a language, to learn a culture, so that he could proclaim truth. I'm not extolling the man. I'm extolling the mission that God is accomplishing as we give our hearts to him. Jesus is saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Let me about, be about the work of building the kingdom of God. So let me just ask you by way of application, what, what are you doing right now? This isn't guilt. This is this stirring your heart. What are you doing right now that's contributing to the building of God's kingdom? What are you doing right now that's contributing to the building of God's kingdom. My guess is that many of you, most of you, are doing quite a few things. And yet, the Lord may have more for us to do 
as we pray this prayer, your kingdom come. Finally, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this request very much flows from the one that preceded it, your kingdom come. Because if we're living for the kingdom of God, well, then we're going to want to be doing the will of God. Now, it's an interesting phrase. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is the will of God accomplished in heaven? It's accomplished without rebellion. It's accomplished without delay. It's accomplished without sin. Now, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God when he arrived on the scene. But it has not yet been fully consummated. It will be fully consummated when he returns in power and glory. And, and that day will be amazing as we are with him and he returns everything right. He takes all the wrongs and, and makes them right. But until that day comes, we are to live in the kingdom as if we are in heaven. In other words, that his will would not be opposed by us. Your will be done on earth, in our hearts, on earth, just as it is in heaven where it's not opposed. His will is not opposed in heaven. He speaks and it happens. In the same way he speaks here, and sometimes we obey him, praise the Lord, right? And sometimes we do not. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we draw this to a close, I, I want to I draw two ways that this, that praying like this, you can pray the prayer exactly as it is. You can take principles from the prayer and trust the Lord will continue to work in your heart. But, but praying like this will have effect on your heart. It will affect your heart two ways. I hope these will be encouraging to you. Um, praying like this will cause your love for God's Word to grow. It will. Praying like this will cause uh, your love for God's Word to grow. How do I know that? Well, because we know that in God's word, we, we understand what his will actually is. That's, that's how we understand the shape and the contours of God's will. You know, you may wonder, oh, what's God's will for my life? Let me read to you. Let me read to you three passages. Just hang with me. We're almost done. Three passages that declare what God's will for you is definitively this morning. Okay, there's a lot more that I could read. I just chose three. Uh, first Thessalonians 5.18, what does it say? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's sometimes really hard, right? Because sometimes our circumstances are really hard. But this is the will of God for you. If you're a believer, it's God's will. Secondly, therefore, Ephesians 5, therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You want to know what the will of God is? It's that you're not drunk, 
That's what God's will for you is, that you're not drunk, but instead you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit being inside you means that we're going to speak the Psalms and we're going to sing and we're going to be together in unity before the Lord. Third, just snapshot of the will of God for you. This one hits as well. First uh, Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's the will of God for us, right? That we abstain from being sexually immoral. It's very clear. It's, it's not dancing around. It, it's very clear that we know how to control our body in purity and in holiness. That is the will of God for us. And so we say, your will be done. Well, what informs the will of God? It, the word of God informs the will of God. So when we pray, Prayers like this, we will grow in our affection for the Word of God. We will grow in agreeing with Psalm 19 that says, The Word of the Lord is right, true, pure, greater to be desired than than gold, even much fine gold. That's what happens when we pray uh, the Lord's Prayer. Secondly and finally, with this I close, our faith will grow. I, I want to invite the worship team back on the stage with me. Second effect, our faith will grow when we pray things like the Lord's Prayer. Our faith will grow. It will grow. Why? Because we will be more aware of who our Father is in heaven, right? The fact that He desires to know us and, and to care for us in very intimate ways. So, so when you... Who, which, which person is going to grow more? Somebody who knows that their father loves them and cares for them or someone who is really unclear about that? Which one is going to grow in faith? The one who knows. Who the, one, the one who is assured that the father knows. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we believe it in our heart, what happens is our faith will grow. Our faith will grow and we will be stimulated in that growth. There's a reason, dear friends, and you probably know this. I'm likely stating something you already know. There's a reason, though, that we end our services with the promise of God. It's because we want you to be reminded as you step out from this place and go wherever you go, we want you to be reminded as the last thing in your mind that God is with you. That God goes before you. That God is going to provide for you. That he will enable his will to be fulfilled in your life by his grace. And so I, I just want to read again what you hear most Sundays as we conclude. And hear it maybe perhaps with a, a fresh heart this morning. Listen to the proclamation. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, there's the gospel, the great shepherd of the sheep, again speaking to God's fathering heart toward us, the fact that he shepherds us and leads us to still waters, to green pastures. By the blood of the eternal covenant, look at that next phrase, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. There's a direct link between this prayer and what we recite each Sunday. So that you may, we all may be encouraged and strengthened 
and that our faith may grow. So, dear friends, here's what this prayer is about. It's about God teaching us to revere his name, to love and labor in his kingdom, to to gladly submit our hearts to his will, that we might act and live and be for his kingdom and for his glory. Church, I know this is your heart to live this way. And I believe the Lord, in increasing measure, is going to help us to live this out as we put our faith and our trust in him. And that's a way to close our time. Would you stand with me now? And uh, Barb, if you could uh, project back on the screen uh, the Lord's Prayer that we had at the beginning. We're going to just say this once again together. And we're going to conclude in song. So let us state the Lord's Prayer once more together. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen.